Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 209th episode the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Forrest Baumover. Forrest is a financial advisor and partner with Lawrence Financial Planning, an independent REA based in Tampa, Florida, that oversees more than $100 million of assets under management for 70 affluent clients. What's unique about Forrest, though, is the path to partnership as a financial advisor. Having launched as a career changer coming out of the military with the niche of serving other military veterans in transition, only to find that his options and opportunities to become a partner in an existing advisory firm grew even more quickly than the niche that he had started out building on his own. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Forrest set the stage for his career-changing transition from the Navy into financial planning, why Forrest chose to complete his CFP education, his enrolled agent license, his Series 65, and even the creation of his RIA entity, all before it even finished his military service and reached his transition date. How Forrest further set the groundwork for his initial stages of business development by setting up a blog and beginning to write articles in his prospective niche, and the organizations that Forrest joined early on, from Toastmasters to the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners and his local chamber of commerce, all to begin networking that he would need to do to be successful when he launched his firm. We also talk about what led Forrest towards a path of merging his advisory firm into a larger one just as his niche was starting to gain traction. How he weighed the decision of whether to stick with his current independent practice or walk away from it in order to be a part of something even larger instead. The way that the work that Forrest had done in preparing for and then building his own firm ended up accelerating the trust curve when he decided to merge. And how Forrest structured the partnership buy-in with his current firm to become a partner. And be certain to listen to the end, where Forrest shares his thoughts on the challenges of launching an advisory firm from scratch, even when you think you're prepared and still have to adjust when reality hits. The importance of having a plan and sticking to it, but also being prepared to pivot if a new opportunity comes along. And his philosophy that in the end, it's not about whether your firm ends out being exactly what you'd envisioned from the start, but simply whether you finish in the general ballpark of where you were trying to get in the first place. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Forrest Baumover. Welcome, Forrest Baumover, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today of career transitions into financial planning and and coming from the military. I've long been fascinated how many people come to financial services in the world of financial advisors from the military? Kind of like on the one hand, I sort of, I, I get it. Like it takes a lot of discipline and focus to build a practice and advisor, particularly for just how grueling the early years can be. And, you know, certainly anyone who's been in service to our country has done a, a lot of that kind of work and discipline and focus. So I, I can appreciate that. At the other end of the spectrum, like military is, well, I guess aside from the hazards of war and military itself, like a rather stable environment. And building a business and advisor and entrepreneurship is like anything but stable. So it's sort of the opposite extreme to me. 
So I'm 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 fascinated even just in your in your perspective as as we jump into the the conversation of like what draws someone like you from the military to the world of financial advisors and why do you think we see so many people that come from the military into the world of financial advising in particular? You know, Michael, that's an interesting question. I I can tell you my story, but I'm not sure how it applies to other people. And so I think that at least some of the people that I've seen, they get marketed to by, you know, some of the big firms like USAA and First Command. And certainly when when there are career fairs for people that are making the transition, you see a lot of financial services industry people, you know, at those job fairs. So that might be a reason, but I can't really put my finger on it. So just big financial institutions. I guess by, by their own means have found working with the military, like military or good people to come into their companies. Obviously, folks like USA and First Command have a particular focus on that and serving the military as well. So they like to hire for the military to serve the military. So of course they're recruiting at the military, which means they build awareness of financial advising as a career path while while people are still in the military. Right. I mean I I think it depends on which segment of the military you're talking about. So when I was enlisted, certainly the people that are doing their initial enlistments and looking to get out, they're probably more positioned to go to school right away and finish their their degree. If they're further along in their enlisted career, they might be looking for opportunities related to their technical trade. For junior officers who might be getting out after the four to six-year point, junior military officers, they get targeted pretty heavily by headhunters who focus on either leadership or sales and marketing type Mm. positions. And certainly you can position financial services under something related to do with sales. And then, you know, for the career oriented officers, people that are retiring at the, at the 20 year point, there's an opportunity to, you know, possibly reinvent yourself. And so, you know, certainly that was kind of what I looked to do, mainly because I was retiring in my early 40s and knew that I had the potential for, you know, 20 plus years of earning potential somewhere that did not need to depend on my government experience. And so that's, you know, I probably backed into financial planning, not in the traditional go to a job fair and get marketed by, you know, headhunters and things of of that nature. I, I kind of found my own path towards that. And I guess part of the path I'm presuming that comes with, you know, serving that long in the military and then coming and then coming out and making the transition is that you come out with some sizable level of military pension that just helps to actually make the financial transition from military to, well, I guess I was going to say financial advising, but military to whatever it is that comes next. But financial advising being one that's challenging for a lot of people because the income is very meager in the early years. If you get to transition coming out with with a military pension, does that help facilitate that kind of shift? It kind of does. And, and certainly there's probably a new generation of people that would be less risk averse, right? The, the, the folks that if you follow Mr. Money Mustache or one of the kind of 
save significantly more than you can earn type blogs, then you'd be better positioned for something like that. But we found that there's still kind of like a a little of a gasp factor when you get that last active duty paycheck and recognize that the next month you're going to get a check on the first of the month, but not on the 15th. And so there's still an adjustment and, you know, we can talk through all of the, the, the things that I tried to do mentally, but until you make that transition, there's still kind of a, an adjustment. And the longer that you have a career in that military, you know, for, for people that retire at the 20 year mark, it's a little bit different than if you retire as a more senior person, you know, 25, 30 plus years. And so there's the adjustment that you still have to make. So, so if you weren't getting drawn to this from the USA first command, like large firm style financial services recruiting at the recruiting fair, what, what did lead you to say like, this is the thing that I want to do after I, after I finished my service in the military? <laughs> There's a point, and probably in my, the middle of my career, I was a department head on uh, on the USS Cole. It's a destroyer out of Norfolk, Virginia, and I was responsible for managing about 50 people on that ship. And a lot of my job was doing all the stuff that fell through the cracks, but it, a lot of my job was also just helping my sailors with personal challenges, either helping them find resources or, you know, trying to remove, basically remove excuses on why they couldn't come to work and do a full day's work. And a lot of those challenges happen to be financial. And so I would sit down with people and kind of work through their cash flow or come up with a plan to pay off their credit card. The, the story that sticks in my mind is uh, is a sailor that worked for me, and he missed the ship's movement. So we got underway, but he wasn't on the ship. And we were out for about a week, and we came back. And in the Navy, that's kind of a big deal. If, if you can't show up to work for a week, then... Well, I would think in particular, like, when it's the Navy and you miss the ship. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That feels rather weighty. So, so we had we had the why did you miss ships movement kind of meeting and and so it was he and I and I sat down with them and I said okay well why did you miss the ships movement and he said well I overslept I said well why did you oversleep and he said well because I was up all night working and I said well I let you guys go pretty early to get everything situated, you know, definitely before five o'clock or 1700 for military types. And he said, well, I have a second job. And I said, well, I didn't know that. And aren't you supposed to get permission from your chain of command before you go out and get outside employment? He said, I know I should have done that, but I was up until about midnight. And I said, well, why did you take the second job? I said, well, I have to pay off this car loan. And we dug further into the details, and it turned out that he was suckered into a very exorbitant car loan for, you know, basically a lemon lot deal. So we calculated the interest rate, and it was something ridiculous, like 68%. And I remember writing this really upset me to the point where I wrote a letter to my congressman about it. And he wrote a response back uh, saying that they were doing a 
a revision to the uh, Service Member Civil Relief Act that that would cap the interest rate on payday loans and things of that nature at 36% to active duty. While that experience left a taste in my mouth, I, I thought to myself, if I choose to part ways with the military, or <laughs> just as importantly, if the Navy chooses to part ways with me, then this this is along the lines of what I would like to do. But I don't want to feel like a social worker, <laughs> like, you know, mm. just going through, creating plans, seeing people kind of fall on the sword when they, you know, kind of go back to bad habits. I, you know, I wanted to, you know, see if there's a way to you know, help people do this, but actually, you know, for people that appreciated it. And that was just a thought that kind of stuck in my mind. It didn't really go anywhere, but yeah, of all the the things that I thought about, what am I going to do when I leave the military? That just kind of kept kept on top of the surface. And so for about five, six years later, at that point, I was about five years out from retirement. And uh, I went to night school when I was a junior officer to get my MBA. So kind of the MBA in me said, well, all right, if you're going to be a financial planner or whatever this is. At that point, I, I did a little bit more research and I found out about things like the CFP designation. And I, and I knew that there were people that did this for a living and, and, and it seemed like they were doing pretty well for themselves. But I took a, a little bit of time to kind of sit down and write out what a business plan might look like. And, and I kind of sat down and said, well, what, what education should I, should I obtain? And that's kind of where I said, okay, the CFP, that seems to be the gold standard. That's the bar that I'll be reaching for. And then I looked and saw how many thousands of CFPs there were back then. Not nearly as many as now, but certainly a lot. And I thought, well, if these people have both the CFP designation and you know, possibly 20 years of experience on me, I, I probably should be looking to bring something else to the table. And so I wrote down all the things that people uh, hate to do when it comes to their finances. And I kept going back to taxes and I thought, well, all right, <laughs> is, is there something to do with taxes that I can, that, that I can possibly do? And I, I found out about the enrolled agent designation. I thought, well, okay, that's something that I could possibly hang my hat on. So I wrote a plan that said, okay, here's what I can do now. And then if my career in the military you know, goes another 10 years, I can at least do something, put it on the shelf. And then when I get down to my last, you know, couple of years, I can take it off the shelf, dust it off, see what needs to be updated and then move accordingly. And so. So you were starting to eye this path like long before you were actually taking the, the leap. I mean, you were just framing it as like, so, hey, like 10 years from now when I may be coming out of the military. So we're, we're talking all the way back in mid to late 2000s or early 20 teens or something that you're you're right. like thinking through this game plan, knowing that you might not actually be out until the late 20 teens. Yes. And, and actually, the other thing that I did was I, I was trying to absorb as much publicly available knowledge as I as I could. And certainly back then I was doing a 
decent amount of commuting. I've always tried to live not much more than an hour away from wherever I worked, but I would still listen to podcasts in the car. And I tried to absorb anything and everything. And back then, I think Joe Rogan was probably the only podcast that was out there. But but I, but I stumbled upon the precursor to the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners. Back then, it was known as the Alliance of Cambridge Advisors. And, and there was... I don't even think that those podcasts ex- ex- exist anymore, but there were a series of interviews that Arlene Moss did with people like Burt Whitehead and and Kenneth Robinson. I think you've had Kenneth on your show before. Yep. And I thought, okay, well, these people seem to have been able to do what I want to do. And it seems like they've been able to do it in a way that is profitable. So let me do some research. Let me reach out to some of these folks. Let me call them and ask them how they did it. And I probably talked to about 25 or 30 of these folks and kind of figured that, okay, there's a template. There's kind of proof that this is a viable, you know, course of action. And that when I'm ready to take the plunge, this is along the lines of what I'd like to do. Interesting, interesting. So, and so the the kind of framework that organizations like ACP put forth that really give a, a a template of kind of here's how you can structure your firm, here's how you can structure your business model, here's how you start going out there marketing. Like you know, they they teach and train on a lot of that. That's a key part of their value proposition. That was a, I guess a a connecting point to you of just okay, when I'm ready to do this, there there are some guideposts, guideposts, and templates out there about how to how to do this. Right. I, I mean, certainly the landscape has evolved a lot since then. But, you know, back then I just needed a couple of people that had done it before me. You know, one of the things that ACP focused on was career changers, people that, you know, before used to be a lawyer and now want to go into financial planning or used to have a completely different career. And, and certainly that resonated a little bit with me because, a lot of the people I were talking to were in their 30s and 40s when they made that career transition. So as you were eyeing this build up like very far in advance, what did you end up actually, I guess, doing to to get ready for this launch? Like when did you make the decision, this is the thing I'm going to do? What did you actually do in in the in the preparation then? Like when did this go from research to actually starting to do things to get ready for a transition. Right. So, so there were two parts to this. The first part was I researched and saw that I could get my CFP education, put it on the shelf, write out a business plan of all the things that I would do, put that on the shelf. And so it actually ended up being the, the tour before my retirement tour in Tampa. So I was living in Philadelphia at the time. And I, because it's so close to Philadelphia, the American College, and tried to look at that curriculum, it, it didn't quite you know, fit what I thought I needed. So I ended up doing the correspondence work through the College for Financial Planning, put that on the shelf, got my certificate, and then everything else was just written out ready to go. Just curious, what led you to 
College for Financial Planning versus American College? Just I know there are a lot of people out there that are looking for education, trying to look, trying to decide between them. And I think for people outside the industry, like they they kind they kind of look similar. Like just sure, you can do it at a distance, and they've got a whole bunch of designations, including the CFP. What actually led you to choose the College for Financial Planning in Denver versus American College in Pennsylvania? So I was turned on to the American College because I had been present at a speech where they unveiled a scholarship for veterans and active duty military that were transitioning. And I thought, hey, if I could do this for free, great. I yeah. kind of passed my first self, self-initiated test of my financial planning acumen, which yes. would be to get whatever I wanted for less money than retail. Seems financially sound. Sure. <laughs> But when I when I did the interview with them, I think they were looking. It, I I can't put my finger on it. It just well, first of all, the scholarship was sponsored by Penn Mutual, and so it, it seemed like a little insurance <laughs> kind mm. of oriented. And I thought, well, isn't there more to the curriculum than just insurance? I mean, taxes and you know all the other financial planning stuff. So I I looked at that and I thought, well, what other places. Obviously, I was looking for something that I could do remote learning. And I I know that you create businesses with practical sounding names. I kind of have taken a similar path, but in reverse. So, you know, the paths that I've taken usually kind of end up making common sense. And I thought, well, if there's a college for financial planning and I want to be a financial planner, then they're probably not going to be too far off the mark of the education I wanted to get makes sense to me, and you know that is quite literally their origin story. So <laughs> they've done that for thirty odd years now. I guess closing on thirty five or so. That was just me being an industry outsider trying to figure out what my education should look like, and so you know I used the Navy's tuition assistance to you know pay for my education. It was pretty simple, some paperwork. My boss signed off on it, so I probably tipped my hand and kind of at least sent a signal that down the line, he at least knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. So you you came into this with the expectation, like, I'm going to do my CFP coursework. I still won't be able to use the marks because you're not necessarily getting experience yet, but that was fine with you or that was still the goal was I at least want to check off the education box. So... Right. I wanted to check that off because it was one less to-do list for when, you know, Tanya and I decided the t- the time was right. And and so after my first couple of tours, and there were some times when I thought I was just going to, you know, leave much earlier in my career, but Tanya and I would look at each other and, and at some point during the tour, we would say, we would just kind of have the conversation of, are we still having fun in the Navy? Are we still enjoying life in the Navy? And then two, is this the place that we would look to retire if we were to retire from the Navy? And, and one thought that I've always had in my mind, and I, and I share this with people in the military because I think here's a way that might work, which is if you have the opportunity to retire at the area of your last duty station, you know, two to three years of being able to take some time and develop some 
community relationships and and do some local networking, there's an opportunity there that doesn't necessarily exist if you retire and then pull chocks, as a lot of military folks might say, and move to a completely new location where you have to start from scratch. And so Tanya and I always kind of had that in our mind. And we thought that if we got to the point where we were ready to plant roots and retire, we would probably know it. And I would probably use as much of that two to three year tour to do work on the side, not at the expense of my day-to-day job, but on the side, I would do nights and weekends kind of work so that, you know, I could get as much out of the way as possible. And that was kind of what my plan was was designed for, taking a, a little bit of time mid-career to get the education out of the way, knowing that there's no real expiration, but then knowing that there's a lot that I wouldn't be able to do until the time was right. So what else were you doing in the buildup? Got, got your CFP education done. You were writing out, a, I guess, a business plan. You were starting to gear up for some local networking to be able to get going for the dot final duty station that you were at. Like, what did some of that look like as you said, like, okay, I got to start planting some seeds here? Right. So the vast majority of that was really, so if I was stationed in Philadelphia, the very next tour was the tour that Tanya and I decided to retire from. And so the Navy moved me from Philadelphia down to Tampa, Florida. I worked at MacDill Air Force Base. And ironically, it was about an hour away from where I grew up. So there were a lot of reasons why Tanya and I decided that this was the place that we would retire. And because we re- we made that decision pretty early in the tour, that was really where most of my legwork began. So we moved down here in 2014. And in 2015, I took the CFP exam, the three enrolled agent exams, the uh, Series 65 exam, registered an RIA, created the S Corporation, and started uh, started writing articles, all kind of as part of my plan and my day job involved a lot of overseas travel. So I was kind of doing that while I I think that year I flew about 150,000 miles. So all of that was kind of in 2015. In 2016, I I got most of the mechanics out of the way and and was trying to create a more of an online presence. But there was still some stuff that I wasn't going to be able to actually do until I didn't have that full-time job blocking up my calendar. So interesting. So in 2015, like not only did you get CFP education exam done, you, you did your EA as well, which I guess just means you're, you're done done on that. Cause there's not a, right. Not a separate three years of experience requirement. You got your series 65 and actually registered an RIA. So you're, you are still working in the military at this point. This is essentially like you've, you've created your RIA entity is I suppose to quote unquote, like a side hustle, but it's, it's not like you have, you were not waiting until you 
turned in your papers to retire from the military and then went out and started the RIA entity. You actually created it while you were still where you were. Correct. My leadership knew about that. I, I had a letter on file that said, this isn't going to affect you know my, my day-to-day job. I mean, certainly there are ways that you can position yourself. And it, when I talked with other people that left the military, they felt like they needed to kind of keep a low profile on it. I, I tried to strive for a better balance so that people knew what I was doing as the side hustle, but also knew up front that this was in no way, you know, violating any ethics, you know, regulations, that this was, you know, completely separate, that it didn't interfere with my job duties. And and certainly I, I, I think that enough people knew about what I was doing that if I was straying off the reservation, I, I probably would have been told about it. Okay. And the idea of, I mean, I get why you were getting your CFP education, your EA license and such in place, right? That just sort of all this educational foundation knowledge so you can hit the ground running when you make the transition. What led you to actually create the RA entity was the idea you actually wanted to start getting clients doing some advice work and getting paid just on a limited part-time scale because you weren't ready to make the transition yet? Or... Was this also kind of a, I'm creating it, but it's really still on the shelf? So I reverse engineer. I, I mean, I really tried to plan to optimize as much time as possible. And so starting with my retirement date, the earliest date that I could retire, I think I was off by about a month just due to military calculations. But I went back and I said, well, if my retirement date is this date in 2017, then the maximum amount of leave I can carry forward is this many days. I'm entitled to this many days. I had everything mapped out. And my entire purpose was to get as much time that I could still be on leave, vacation, that I would be actually out and about meeting people, networking, doing all of the grow your business type stuff. So one of the one of my ACP mentors told me affectionately that, you know, your job as a financial planner until you have at least 10 clients is to go out and find 10 clients. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you know, I did not want to spend my terminal leave, as they say in the military, doing any of this blocking and tackling kind of stuff. I wanted that to be maximum effort just cups of coffee and chamber of commerce meetings and everything that I could in support of that client acquisition goal. Okay. And so everything else just happened to be an afterthought where if I didn't have to do it after I left the office and was on leave, then I was putting it into something that I could do, you know, nights and weekends on the side. So RIA registration just happened to be something that I could do that. And it was just one less thing that would occupy my time when I should be out getting clients. Interesting. Okay. So it, it, it really wasn't necessarily about starting to build your client base, like in a, an extended lead in while you were still in the, in the military, but just getting to the point that everything's in place so that the moment you hit that 
transition or I guess the terminal leave leading up to the transition, you can be full time and energy towards I'm going to go find my first 10 clients. Correct. Okay. So anything else that you were doing in the, in the transition lead up before we, we get to the actual transition where you took the leap? Well, I think this is where I started listening to a lot more material that was out there. And certainly I think it was before you started your podcast, but there were, there were still a lot of discussions about trying to find your niche. And, and I thought, well, I'm a career military officer that's spending my last couple of years trying to, you know, map out what my retirement plan looks like. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write articles and learn about how to build an online presence, I probably should start with some sort of military niche. And, and so I created a website that, you know, I, I think just watching my kids grow up, sometimes you, you hear these teen and preteen conversations that don't make any sense. And you, you realize that they're just still learning how to talk where yeah. we've been doing it for, you know, 40 plus years. And, and so when you start writing articles, you spend a lot of time just learning how to write articles. And, and certainly that's where a lot of my kind of just growing pains came out of. But along the way, I, I found a niche of military-focused personal finance uh, bloggers that, that I really connected with. And, and that, you know, so there's a little community, almost a subset of the thin con larger community of military focused bloggers folks like doug nordman yeah, right and ryan gana and kate horrell who have done very well for themselves in educating military audience and kind of you know doug for example kind of led a pretty good example of what people can do if they want to retire from the military and never take another paid job again. And so he wrote a blog, created a book out of it, and he's kind of a standard at FinCon and a lot of other financial uh, kind of on the circuit. And, you know, Ryan, he's created two very successful blogs in his own right, and that's his full time job. He's also an officer in the Air National Guard, a lot of other military folks that have been able to create their own businesses and, and, and do kind of what I was aspiring to do. I guess they did it primarily in the in the blogging online media context. You were coming in with the view of, I actually want to get, get to the point of one-to-one advising for individual clients. Right. And that, and that was the intent. And that was definitely a focus for me. And they, and they recognized that they accepted it. They said, Hey, he, he's one of the good guys you know, he's, he's not someone that's going to sell you weird products or, you know, everyone kind of has their horror stories about certain, you know, companies that sell products and take advantage or do things that create horror stories. So they at least knew that I was trying to do this in a, in a different manner. And so what was the niche, I guess, expected to be or or becoming? Like, just anybody that was military, that was former military, that was transitioning in and out of the military, which I think is where mm-hmm. Doug spent a lot of his time. Like, was there something that you were 
framing up to the the niche beyond beyond simply like the military. I was really trying to focus on people that were career military, but were transitioning to civilian life, right? So whether it's someone that was, you know, retiring and just going through a lot of the same hurdles and challenges that I was going through, trying to get their arms around different military programs that you don't really know about while you're on active duty, but then for example, the survivor benefit plan, which is kind of the military's pension protection program for you know spouses that outsurvive their their military uh, service member counterparts, and so just trying to get my arms around this for myself, I thought, well, here I am, an aspiring financial planner, and I'm really trying to make sense of all this. I'm I'm sure people that haven't even put any thought into this must be pretty overwhelmed and maybe there's an opportunity to help those folks out. And that, that, that was my niche. That's what I wanted to do. And so what was the business model going to be? Like, were you going to charge them standalone piece for financial plans? Did you want to do hourly planning? Were you going to also manage portfolios and do this on an assets or management basis? Right. What, was the, what was the business model that you were envisioning as you were gearing up for this launch? So at this point, I had joined, then it was called the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners, and they have the retainer model, similar to XY Planning Network. And and during the training, they kind of coach you on how to schedule the meetings where you sit down and you you tackle, probably first and foremost, the, bi- the big problems, the challenges that that bring the client in the door. And then along the way, you're uncovering the you know, the tax planning opportunities or laying out the retirement plan projections. And and so my my goal was to build, you know, my practice based on that. And then of course if people wanted to hire me for a one time engagement, you know, of course I would be doing that as well. And that worked a little bit. I didn't get that much business while I was on active duty, primarily because I was still traveling a lot. But I did have uh, some client work and some clients kind of waiting in the wings for when I made the transition and, and was able to actually start working with people during the week. So, so then tell us about the, the transition, like you're building up, you're putting all these pieces in place. You're, you're getting your education, the entities out there, you're starting to network around the, the military personal blogger community. You're at least dabbling out there to some people that you're you're doing this on the side. It's going to be a full-time thing soon. There's a, a hopefully a few clients waiting in the wings who are going to join when, you, when you're ready to go. So what, what did the actual transition launch plan look like? So my retirement uh, date was sometime in April 2017. And from then until say, the 1st of September, I, I was basically on paid leave and the Monday after, I had my schedule of here are my local contacts in the community. At that point, I had you know a few dozen articles out there and had started a Facebook group and done some things online so that my website was getting some traffic. But I'll tell you, I, I still came you know to the realization probably after about a month of activity that, that I just hit a wall. So all the work that I could have done, everything 
about a month into it, I thought this is going to be a really tough three years. Because you like you finally got full time to do this, so you built up this list of like prospects to talk to and people to network with and relationships to explore and you finally make the transition you can do this full time and it takes you about 30 days to call and meet with every single one of those people and it's like now now what like i i met with all of them and i talked with all of them and i can't call them back now because we just talked like a week or two ago well so there was that so i joined the local chamber of commerce i i went to a local toastmasters mainly because you know i had joined toastmasters a few tours prior and i liked the fact that it helped me really overcome a fear of public speaking and i thought that that would be a good way to get back into it have something to do but then if someone ever said hey, Forrest, we'd like you to give a presentation, I at least would be a little bit more comfortable with with that setting. I also joined a local realtors group on, on basically on the recognition of a friend of mine. But all, all of those things were kind of activities that they were going to be things I, ne- I knew I needed to do where the payoff wasn't immediate. And so building the relationship, getting more deeply involved in each of those, those are things I could put on the calendar. And then every once in a while, I'd get the, hey, let's meet for a cup of coffee and talk about business things. So, Right. I guess, you know, like I'm totally ready to get involved in my chamber of commerce and really and really get active. It's like, but but they literally only meet once a month. Like there's right. kind of there's I mean, so much else you can do. Yeah, they had a couple. Of, I mean, ours was a little bit more active, but yeah, the, e- even then you're you're only doing so many things, but one thing that I realized I there was no never a limit on was how much I could write. So, even when someone canceled a meeting and I was sitting in the Starbucks, I would take the time and write an article and and think a, a little bit more about something that I might have just read. I always tried to have something consistently that I could put online that would at least complement anything that I could do in person. I'm fascinated by sort of this balance that you had of of trying to write and, and put out articles. So like what were you writing about and where did you put them out? Like you said you were putting out articles. What are you writing about and where are you putting them out to? So I started a website and it was called Military in Transition. I, at one point, it probably had over 100 articles in it or maybe about 150 articles. But I was writing a lot about you know, questions that I had when I was going through the process. And so I wrote a significant amount of, about the military's survivor benefit plan. And at one point, Doug or Ryan or one of the military folks, they said, you've got several pretty decent articles on this. Why don't you just put them together and create an ebook? And I thought, huh, okay. So I did that and I self-edited through the create space and put it on Amazon. And and I thought, well, this isn't going to substitute <laughs> any kind of occupation. I, I, I knew that. Meaning like you're you're not going to be retiring off of Amazon book sales at a couple of dollars a piece. But it's interesting because there's a place on Amazon 
for someone who wants to learn about the survivor benefit plan. I think before there was like a term paper that someone wrote and there really wasn't anything. So in what I wrote on wasn't the nuts and bolts because you can go to the government websites and learn that information, but it was really more about kind of how the survivor benefit plan was built on the heels of World War II to support spouses and back then primarily female spouses that were dependent on pension income from their husbands and what would happen. And so my grandmother's case, my grandfather was a army colonel, retired, died about five years later. She lived for another 28 years and, you know, was greatly benefited from the survivor benefit plan. But in today's day and age, there's some other considerations that probably didn't exist when my grandmother and grandfather were in the military. You know, what happens to the longevity risk when the career military person is a female, right? Like, you know, what are the other considerations that you might be thinking about when you're making that decision on whether to participate or not participate? And certainly I got a lot of questions based on that. I think my thought, my thoughts have matured about that topic uh, since then. But a lot of people asked me and you know, kind of said, hey, what should I do here? And so there's that. There's a thrift savings plan. There were a lot of military programs or things that I didn't find a lot about online. So I just kind of started answering my own questions research and answering your own questions. And since the people you were trying to serve were people like you, if, if it was a question you had, it was probably a question that people you're trying to work with had. And if you get the answer for you, you get the answer for them. And if it's out on the internet, then they can find it, which means they can find you. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll, we'll get to that, you know, kind of a little bit down the line in this conversation, but you know, some of that content's still out there. Although as I transitioned away, I, I, I try to find a good home for articles that I thought would be appropriate to keep online, but, you know, weren't going to be a part of my niche going forward. So, so, so you're putting all these things out there in 2017 as you're getting going, like you're networking in the chamber of commerce and Toastmasters and local realtors group, and you're writing articles and putting your book out. So what was working for you? What got traction? To be honest, (laughs) my first actual retainer client, I thought it was a spam email. And I always check my spam. It it didn't go through my spam filter, but it was a very weird Eastern European sounding first name and a weird last name. And I just thought, what is this? Like This sounded like some sort of scheme. So I looked at the email and it turned out to be someone that just needed help with a significant amount of tax debt. And so my first client was someone that needed help navigating. The husband was a very highly compensated doctor. And at one point they opened their own practice, kind of ran it, but didn't know all, all the tax rules. So they weren't paying taxes as they went along. They got behind on several years worth of taxes. 
And at this point, when I met them, they had just liquidated his retirement account to get their back taxes down below $100,000. And then their CPA prepared their tax return and said, my recommendation is to pay this tax. And of course, they had at this point, they had no assets. And once that <laughs> tax return was filed, it was about $140,000 of tax debt plus cool. plus penalties and interest. And they said, can you help me? <laughs> I said, well, I could see why no one else would want to help you because you, you don't have any investment assets to manage. But here I calculated a fee and I said, we'll walk through this together. And a couple of things that they had to their benefit was that he had significant cash flow because he was a highly paid doctor. And and he actually had a side gig where he would do 24-hour shifts at a different hospital. His side gig was <laughs> more than I had ever made. So they had earning power and we kind of walk through the IRS's process of this is how we resolve tax debt. And, you know, first we went to the local office and they said, we can't help you because you're over $100,000. So everything goes to the centralized system where you have to go through the phone tree. And I'm thinking, great, they're in Wesley Snipes territory in terms of tax <laughs> trouble. And, <laughs> yeah, I was just saying, like, it's, it's not good when you're like, oh, you have this much tax debt? There's a special phone number. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of time we spent on hold. There was, uh, you know, just kind of hand-holding. And, and what we ended up doing was they had enough equity in their house to where – I was able to find a mortgage broker that would do specialized home equity line that would allow them to take more than the standard amount out of their equity, pay that as a down payment to the IRS so that they could get down below the $50,000 level where then they could you know, do their IRS tax payment plan without having a lien placed on their house. And so we kind of walked through all that. We did a cash flow analysis. They cut, you know, expenses where they could, but you know, kind of the traditional financial planner, it's it's a big sacrifice for them. It's not as much as I would like to see. It's definitely nowhere close to what the IRS would insist on if if they were involved in this process. And right. and so we kind of walked our way through and the successful story was that, you know, they eventually, you know, paid everything off and, and that was my first client, had nothing to do with military. So where did it go from there? Like, did you find military clients started coming along? Did you end up continuing to get more of these other tax, <laughs> tax related clients and strange tax situations? Like where did business begin to come from as you tried to build some momentum? I would say that I've gotten clients because of military affiliation and but the clients that I was getting during that time, during that first year, really, there were mostly people that just wanted a one-time plan, kind of a an analysis. And then they said, okay, I'm comfortable with checklists. Give me a checklist of all the th things I need to do, and I can go take care of it myself. And, and I learned that, you know, for, for military people and, and for people that might be looking to serve military a lot of military folks are really so used to doing things on their own that 
they're looking for a checklist type situation. A lot of folks are. So that sounded a little bit more like what a Garrett planner would be. Right. Sort of like hourly fee for service. Correct. Come on and ask me your questions and I'll answer your questions. And, and, it, and it's hard. And, and certainly with, with people trying to navigate a transition where they've got so many checklists that they don't know what to do with, they're probably not going to be un- inclined in their last year in the military to do a monthly or even a quarterly check-in just to see how things are going. I mean, military folks by nature are action-oriented. They tell me what I need to get done. We don't need to look at each other once a quarter. If we're going to meet twice a year, it, it better be worth my while kind of thing. And so I started thinking like, all right, well, if the military focus is going to take longer than I expected, and certainly I'll back up a couple of thoughts. One, Doug Nordman, you know, as much as he tried to kind of, you know, tell people that I was a planner that was focusing on military, they'd keep coming back to him because he basically did everything that I would do for free. And and if you go to his website, the military guide, his bio actually says that I help people with their stuff for free. And I thought, well, how do I compete with a free business model? And the, the, the answer is you really have to, you have to focus on something that the free business model doesn't take care of. And, and in, in my mind, that demographic would be probably more suited to delegators perhaps people that are a little bit more senior military that are making a transition to an executive world where now they're dealing with a whole slew of things that they have no experience in like stock options or executive compensation. And they simply don't have the time. You go up a step in the complexity scale and you start getting away from the stuff that you're going to answer just from reading it on the internet. Right. And so, so I'll say that that was kind of the thinking that if I stick around long enough and then did a, an analysis of what my first 20 to 30 clients would be like, I would have guessed that probably 80 to 90% of them would have been the people that said, yeah, but I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And so... You know, I, I think that this is the point where I was struggling to figure out what my business model was going to look like. And and I didn't get that far because I, I guess that's where serendipity kind of stepped in and, and completely revised my business plan. And so what was the serendipitous moment or event? So this is where... I met Julie. I mean, I Julie Lawrence is now my business partner, but back then this would be probably the fall of 2017. She and I had checked in a couple of times. She's an ACP member as well. Certainly when I was on active duty before I started making this transition, I did I met her in her office and she kind of, you know, offered assistance as a mentor as I was getting closer and I would check in maybe a couple times a year just to you know get some advice or things like that and she asked me about my business plan and I said oh my plan is I'm going to do the typical ACP build 40 client in ACP 40 clients is kind of like the 
the goal of I can do it myself. And then at, at that point, you kind of have a decision on whether or not you would want to consider start hiring part-time assistants or, you know, right. bring in staff. So you get, you get beyond 40 or 50 clients and it starts getting hard if you don't at least have some administrative help. And so my goal was just, Hey, let me see where I'm at at 40 clients. And so we went to lunch one day and, and I had kept track of her because she, she had had a business that evolved to a two planner practice, but you know, she, she hired a planner through new planner, uh, recruiting. And then that planner ended up getting married and relocating out of state. So then she was trapped at her desk. She kind of went through and, and, and I'll say that <laughs> Jim, your deputy editor and I were talking and he's actually local to the area too, right? In, in Tampa. So he was involved in these conversations. And I think if it had not been for you, <laughs> then I probably wouldn't have been having this conversation with Julie because there, there's a very strong consideration of, of them working together. But uh, irony, but because of timely hire, I guess, and serendipity in that, in that manner. So we unwittingly pulled Jim away from working with Julie to work with the kids's platform, which meant Julie was still looking for a hire. <laughs> Correct. And so we started working together the following summer. She brought me in to kind of help just run through tax projections and just run these numbers, churn out a tax report, put it into her recommendations and just get that that work off of her plate. And that was the summer of 2000. 18. And then during our lunch, we kind of were feeling ourselves out saying, well, if this works, then maybe we could eventually, I could work for Julie as an employee and then possibly, you know, become a partner. And I'll say that, you know, I, I was pretty excited because at this point, Tanya and I were, we were I won't say that we were feeling the pain. We we had definitely budgeted for that, but there's there's a sense of there's a different sense of discomfort when you realize that your earn you know your highest earnings were in the past, and even though you expect to get there in the future, you're in that kind of dip point where your earnings are not where they were before. That income valley is not a pleasant pace for anyone. To- just our mental mindset, like it does not feel good to spend an extended period of time below your high water mark. And no matter how frugal you are, unless it's a deliberate part of your plan, and and I even sense this with some of our retiree clients that you know aren't that far away from their working career, there's kind of that sense of anxiety. And so, you know, having the opportunity to you know stabilize our income was appealing to me and I believe that it also helped Julie because she was running basically a two planner practice at that point with one planner. So she was looking forward to not spending nights and weekends at her desk at work and being able to get some of her time back. And so in October of 2018, we kind of took the next step and all of this was on a handshake, but kind of thought that a, a year would be an appropriate amount of time to make sure that this was a good fit for me, that I worked well with Julie's staff, that I worked well with the clients. And 
then if things were looking you know promising a year from then then we'd start talking about a partnership the probably the tough part of all of that is when i brought all of that home to tanya and we discussed it and you know all of this journey so far we talked a lot about me and what i did but behind the scenes, Tanya did all the marketing. She did everything with the website. And when I wrote an article, she was the one that edited it and put it on the website and, and made sure that, you know, she did all of our social media. And, and so for her, even though she wasn't the financial planner, she had a lot of an emotional investment in this. And, and so when I brought this home and said, wow, we're going to start getting paid again. Uh, (laughs) She saw it in a different manner, which was she you saw it as closing the door on what could have been. And that mm. was that was kind of a tough I said, Well, you know, if it doesn't work out, we'll just keep this on the side. Like, you know, that's part of what Julie's promised. And she's like, But that's not your goal. <laughs> if you get your goal and you always get your goal for us because that's what you strive for, then we're basically closing our door on on a lot of work that, you know, you know, that we did, something that we created. And it, it made me think a lot more about taking Julie up on that. And I think Julie, even though at this point she had never talked to Tanya, was probably thinking a lot of the same thing because she told me later on that she was very reluctant to even offer that to me simply because she kind of knew where I wanted to go and and knew that I was, you know, doing a lot of the things that they say you should be doing to get there and that if I kept sticking with it, that I would eventually get to where I wanted to be. So it was definitely tough for Tanya. It was tough for Julie to ask me to do something like this. Emotionally, it was tough for me, but... I think looking back now, it's an okay decision. Because it just, it was going to involve moving away from this niche you'd been building towards this expertise you'd been building and just literally this kind of practice you'd been building for yourselves and into a world of, I'm going to be in a partnership with someone else and I'm going to be in partnership with an established business, which means we're we're going to got to be focusing on... Julie's clients and Julie's target market, not necessarily my target market of the past. Well, it's actually even just to take it a step further, it was really folding my fledgling practice at that point. I had about maybe half a dozen retainer clients at that point, folding my fledgling practice into Julie's and hoping that a year from now, she doesn't pull the rug out from under me and saying, oh, well, let's revisit this in another year, right? Like the typical, you know, three-year partnership path that takes, you know, seven years or whatever. Yes, yes. But after seven years, we're really on the three-year plan now. So we're totally here by year 10. So the, the, the good news, and I mean, I cannot thank Julie enough, is that everything she said to me ended up being, you know, her word. So, you know, a year later, we started you know, kind of walking through the process of what that partnership transition would look like. Interesting. And and so like, what was the, what was the promise? What was the offer? Like, what, what was it that she put on the table that made you say like, I'm, I'm willing to fold the thing that I was building that was doing the right things, probably going to get there eventually, but it's the early years are sucky for everyone as we often say. 
like what was it she was putting on the table that made you say, okay, I'm, I think I'd rather go this path than keep building the thing that I've been creating and I own and I control and I built. So I think you go back to the old Mike Tyson adage that, you know, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And certainly I had been working my way through it and just realizing here's an opportunity to not take advantage of Julie, but to, I mean, Julie needed me or she, she, she's at least told me that she needed me about as much as I needed the income stability, whatever that might look like, but she needed a second planner and the, the, the planners that she had worked with before weren't, you know, there was another person that came in and left shortly after and, and she was, she really needed stability on her end and her staff was really, they wanted someone. So I think this was a a mutual benefit. It's not like, you know, I would have expected anyone to just say, here's something for no expectation. There was a benefit to Julie and her company because she was at a point where she had to turn down prospective future clients, even though she had a staff because she was so stretched thin, just trying to service the clients that she had when I came in. And I've always just had a mentality of whoever my boss is, how can I take work off of their plate? And I would just keep going and not just wait for tasks, but really try to, you know, engage Julie and, and tell her what I could do. And, and certainly she told me that her trust curve of me was a little accelerated because of all the work that I had put in. So I, you know, was a CFP and a rolled agent, you know, I started my own practice. So, so all of those things were, were things where, you know, she kind of trusted me a little bit faster than she would have had I just been the third new hire that came in the door. There's an irony to me, and I've seen this for a number of advisors over the years and in kind of those first few years of practice that even for some of those that didn't necessarily want to launch something on their own the way that you did, but sometimes end up feeling like they're forced into it because they they just can't find a job or can't find a good job or can't find a good job at a good firm in the area where they are and have geographic or other constraints that I've seen an astonishing number of advisors that could not find a firm to work at, went and hung their own shingle, did it for 12 to 24 months, and then started getting called and meeting a whole bunch of firms in the area who totally wanted to hire them for an advisor because there's some strange effect that happens. It's like, well, I don't know if I want to hire you, but once you showed you can do it on your own, like now I really want to hire you. Which on the one hand is, as I think you noted or or you know, in the conversations with Tanya is kind of frustrating because you're like, no, you didn't want me before. Like now I'm actually getting my own thing going. (laughs) But on the other hand, like sometimes it opens cool doors to cool opportunities because just a lot of firm owners in practice look at prospective hires very differently. If you have had any taste of running your own practice, doing your own thing, getting your own clients, particularly since you really invested into your, your expertise as well that it, it does change the, as you put it, the trust curve. 
Right. I mean, I think there's something to be said for initiative. And, and certainly that's a highly complimented trait in the military, just, you know, seeing stuff that that needs to get done and doing it without anyone asking you. It's funny because when I was a kid, initiative was not even in my vocabulary. But as I kind of went through the military and kind of grew up in the military, so to speak, I realized that initiative can open a lot of doors. And and I think that I think when you're hiring someone and you see that someone's had an initiative to take risks, to do things that you wouldn't have expected, the downside is that you might spend a little extra time kind of, you know, maybe adjusting their course of action or making minor adjustments, but you're probably not going to spend a lot of time training them. You just give them kind of, you know, barriers to operate within, and then you open those barriers, you know, those kind of left limits and right limits of things that they can do as you see that their potential. And it's a lot different than an employee where, you know, you bring them on and then you have to train them to do every single thing. And then they kind of just wait for work to come to them. Even though the frustrating part is like, well, I, granted, not in your situation, but in some, like, I was taking the initiative to try to apply to your firm to get a job in the first place. You just, you didn't want me until I showed my initiative to do, to do something else. And then it's like, oh, well, you went and made your own thing. Now you can totally come work with us. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I think that just represents a different level of commitment. I mean, you know, we go through a couple of applications a month of, or people that submit a question on our websites looking for a job. That's, that's pretty low risk, but to actually file an ADV, <laughs> like, man, there's a little bit of a more tone of seriousness that, that, that you're presenting when you, when you do that. So what was the nature of the, like the role in the, and the structure? I mean, just like, what was the transition going to be when you said with Julie in October, 2018, we're going to try this thing. Like you became an employee of her firm. Did you, did your firm go away? Did you kind of keep yours on the side and, and had two RAs at once? Did you fold yours in, but you kept your clients? Like just how did this, how this work, particularly since, as you said, like, this is still a test out phase for a year. So everybody's right. kind of figuring out what their plan B is in case this doesn't work out. So, so what we agreed to was that I would keep my registration on the side and we probably both demonstrated shows of good faith, right? So, you know, Julie, now that I know a little bit about behind the scenes, Julie kind of, took a little bit more risk and gave me a pay raise probably earlier than what the employee manual would have instructed just based on, you know, how, how things were going. But I took a risk because I, even though I kept my registration, I, I basically said, well, Forrest doesn't take a new clients under West Chase financial planning. We're going to, you know, if you want to work with Forrest, you'll, you'll have to go to Lawrence financial planning. And I was duly registered and updated the ADVs accordingly and 
So you you essentially became an IAR under Correct. your RIA and under Julie's RIA. Correct. And you know the irony is that that's when momentum actually started picking up. So I think oh. there was a there's a time frame where like I don't know four out of five new clients were were people that either I did an initial plan for and they said okay I want to hire you. Some of those were military, so you know that that because now you were at this point, you're kind of wrapping up your second year in the business and start heading into the third year, which is right when, when a lot of people start seeing traction. And so I, I look back and I think, well, would life have been any better for me just because the marketing part was picking up? And, and I have to answer pretty honestly that no. And the reason why is because, you know, Julie's had this, you know, she's been a planner for 15 years. She was a career changer like me. She came from corporate America and she actually kind of had Kathleen Real as her mentor under ACP. So along the way, she did a lot of other stuff. Like she had a staff that did a lot of stuff that she didn't need to be doing. And I, and I could definitely take advantage of that. She also had, you know, a trading platform, a relationship with Schwab. I mean, the first time that a client wanted me to invest their money, I was like, what do I do with this? Like I figured out the, I was so focused on the marketing and the churning out financial plans. I never stopped to really kind of put together the plan of what happens about investing client money. But she had that taken care of. And I, you know, there was a process for that and we have custodial relationships with Schwab and, you know, working with Julie, I never had to worry about that. But those are all questions that I would have eventually had to fumble through while I'm trying to still grow a profitable business. And I almost feel like I, I hacked a big amount of the learning curve, as my younger son would say, just by, you know, being able to kind of take advantage of this opportunity. So you joined Julie's firm, like in an employee role initially, just taking a, a salary, a, I'm assuming sort of the classic percentage of revenue type model didn't really work because you didn't have clients yet because you're coming into service the right. clients of the firm she's already got. So was this just like a straight salary transition? Pretty much. I mean, you know, the the amount of revenue that the clients that I brought in, it was something. I mean, it would have been enough to make my standalone self pretty happy, but it it, it really wasn't a significant factor when compared to the firm's revenue. So we just decided on a simple salary structure. And so then what happened after a year? Like the idea was we're going to try this for a year and then we're going to we're going to evaluate. So what, what happened after a year? So I'll take a step and, and kind of say that, you know, the traditional good employee show up to work on time and all that stuff. One thing that was always going through my mind was what if I become a partner? And, and so some of the challenges that I had to make sure that I felt comfortable in addressing were making sure that I was a good fit for the firm, not just a, this is going to benefit Forrest, but making sure that I was adding value. 
So I could see that I was adding value to Julie and kind of allowing her to recapture her nights and weekends. But I wanted to make sure, I mean, Julie has a staff and she has clients. So I wanted to make sure, oh, and by the way, I'm the only male member of this firm. So I felt like I needed to be a little, make sure I put a little bit of extra effort to try and make sure that I I kind of incorporate myself into the firm's culture, which, you know, I probably thought a lot about this more than maybe other people, but it was something that I didn't take lightly. I wanted to make sure that I was also providing a, a benefit to clients. So all of that was, those are things that Julie was probably acknowledging as kind of you know, yep, Forrest is doing that. Forrest is getting along. For me, it was it was a lot more, I guess, real estate in my head. Like, you know, how do I do this? How do I make sure that, you know, that I'm doing all this so that if one day everyone wakes up and knows that I'm a partner, they look back and say, okay, that makes sense. This is a good decision. So it was a year of just me making sure that I was presenting the best of myself. And hopefully I did. But a year later, we sat down and said, okay, well, what's the plan? And, <laughs> and what, we, what we hashed out was that you know, Julie wanted to get an end-of-year valuation. This would be for 2019. And so she hired FP Transitions to do a valuation of the firm based on 2019 numbers. And then we, we thought about having FP Transitions – you know, help kind of negotiate the the transaction. But the more we looked at it, the more we really wanted to kind of just keep things simple. And so we just worked through Julie's business coach, now our firm's business coach, Diane McPhee, who I think has been on your podcast before. And we kind of worked through a lot of maybe the negotiating points, either Julie or me or both of us, and, and kind of w- used that as a way to kind of get through the the finer points. Um, Some of the things that we felt pretty confident about that we were on the, on the same side of the discussion was that Julie wanted to, you know, wanted to be 50, 50 partners, like from the onset, we thought that an incremental partnership was probably not, you know, I'm still in the, in the position that until the, paperwork assigned and the loan has been dispersed, I'm kind of respecting all of the terms and conditions that she wants to put out. But that was something that we I didn't really have to worry much about because she wanted clients to know that, you know, we were partners and not just Pat Forrest on the head because he's got a five percent partnership stake and you know I'm still making all the decisions. But she really wanted to make sure that when we entered this partnership that we were speaking with equal voices. And so that's that's the why on not doing it incremental is is Julie really wanted to convey it as a we're really going to a full scale partnership here. I want all of you as clients to view Forrest as a as a full partner at the table. So I want to do this equity transition of 50% all at once so that we can put that stake in the ground and show it. Yes. 
you know, and there are some challenges behind that. Certainly when, when you start talking about kind of the deal that required kind of a little bit more, <laughs> you know, the bigger the percentage, the, the, the bigger the dollar amounts. But that was, I think, a significant commitment on all sides on that, right? So, you know, we ended up working with Oak Street to you know, come up with a loan and, and, and what they would, they offered us was, you know, I would put down 10% of the purchase price. The bank would loan for 50% and then Julie would seller finance the other 40%. Interesting. And just curious, like why that structure? I mean, I sort of get like a portion down and then a, a portion finance, but what what leads you to say like let's do part bank financing and part seller financing is that just some of the limitations of of banks they will only lend so much so so julie needed to do some seller financing or was there like a vision or intention behind saying let's split how the financing works so we worked with a great loan officer her name was susie McEwen, and she basically said look we want to make sure that you know obviously forrest putting down you know, 10% is we can go through the books and make sure that the the revenue and the earnings are there and he'll guarantee that he's not going to run off. But what is there to guarantee that Julie doesn't, you know, or the selling partner in any case doesn't just take off with a decent amount of money and, you know, go to the Cayman Islands. So keeps a little skin in the game. Like, yeah, you know, you're, you don't exactly want to tank the firm after you sell it if you have seller finance part of it because then you not get your own money. Yeah, maybe you're just you know taking an extreme discount so you can get out of Dodge for some reason. So that that was kind of the bank's insistence. You know, we worked within those parameters, and and I think that we came to terms that were acceptable to everyone. I will say at this point, this this kind of negotiation was going on and <laughs> during the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic when it started breaking out. And probably an unanticipated benefit was that when PPP loans became available, they were very hard to come by. And you had to have a banking relationship to even get the paperwork in there. Well, the bank that Lawrence Financial Planning normally uses was not doing PPP loans. They they said, we're not doing it. Sorry, go somewhere else. And of course, everyone else wouldn't accept you unless you already had a banking relationship. Right. So we were able, even though the loan hadn't been issued yet, we were able to use the loan application as kind of the air quotes banking relationship that allowed us to qualify for a PPP loan. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, I, ironic how these things sometimes fortuitously turn out and, and I guess comforting from, from your end of, yeah, it's a heck of a time to be putting a giant down payment and buying in at 2019 valuation while the world is in turmoil in March, April of 2020 that, you know, in, in the truest sense, like, a lot of uncertainty about the forward health of the business in this transition in a pandemic, like, you know, for absolutely what, what PPP loans were being built for. Was- exactly. And, and I think that, you know, looking back on how everything transpired, not sure that the coronavirus, you know, pandemic really 
affected that transaction, but it was just nice knowing that we were working with a banking partner that was, you know, I mean, from their perspective, certainly any financial stability that the PPP loan provides and the loan forgiveness, you know, provisions and all of that stuff makes this a better loan to underwrite. So certainly the bank was thinking that as well. So, so as you look back on this, now that you're another year into this and the, the, you know, the partnerships in place, how do you look back at this crossroads that you are at now with the business was painfully low to slow to launch on your own, but was starting to gain momentum and seems to have maybe been gaining momentum as you did this transition, but now you're in a, a good role here in the, the partnership transition that was a hope in October, 2018 actually became a reality in 2019 into 2020. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, how do you look back now at that crossroads decision of could have kept where you were, it was gaining momentum, it would presumably be bigger now than it was then, maybe not as big as what you have now, but you don't all of that, but you're a partner in this, but you're a partner in, in this. <laughs> so like, there's a lot of different trade-offs and pros and cons. Like, I, I'm just... I'm just curious how you look at and weigh that decision now and, and how, how Tanya looks and weighs at the decision now. So I have to admit, I think about it every day. And, and the reason why is because when I go into my closet to pull out the shirt that I'm wearing, I usually set aside three, <laughs> three polo shirts that Tanya had made that have West Chase financial planning embroidered on them. And so just by default, I'm looking at those saying, oh, well, that's what could have been. But I, I think that now that we're kind of through a lot of this stuff, Tanya is our office manager. We work with a great staff. We've got two outstanding associate advisor paraplanners, Brea and Christina, and Kyle uh, works with us on a part-time basis. She screens all of our prospective clients and schedules all of our client meetings. So we have a great staff. We have a great group of clients. And I don't look back and wish for the days where I felt like a starving artist at all. Yeah. So I think as time goes by, I'm probably less, I guess, wistful about the days of, of that, mainly because I strongly believe in just trying to fall forward. So if my initial plan didn't work out, then I'm somewhere in the ballpark of where I should have been anyway. Yeah. I like how you frame that, the, the benefits of trying to fall forward. Maybe it didn't turn out exactly as as anticipated, but you're still in the ballpark of being in a good place doing financial advising, helping people, making good income. Like it's it's landed in a good ballpark. Right. And and certainly the less time I have to worry about my own financial stability is is time that I can spend actually helping other clients. So and so just to paint the picture for us, you you talked about the the team, but just what is the what's the size of the the firm client base at this point? I don't know if you measure number of clients or AUM or revenue or other metrics, but like how do you what's the overall size of the practice at this point? So we have about seventy 
client households that we serve on a full-time basis, we have probably about eight or 10 clients that we might meet once a year or every other year to review or to update their investments. We have about, actually I have it written down on a note, about $108 million in, in assets under management. So as you look back on this journey, what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business? I don't think anything surprised me. There are certain times over the course of my military career where, I mean, it's kind of like being prepared for the ice bucket challenge, right? Like you just, you know, it's coming, it's going to suck. And there's no feeling like actually going through the experience. So not any surprises, but just how you feel in that moment is you can't anticipate it. It's like trying to describe it to someone before they go through the experience and, and there's just no substitute for the actual experience. Yeah. <laughs> Putting it in terms of the ice bucket challenge is an interesting way to, to frame it, but there, there is this challenging effect. I, I feel like this is the forever, the challenge of like any parent with a child, anyone who's tried to mentor or coach someone young that like we talk about the value of experience and there's so much that it's just hard to really absorb what it's like until you have the experience. And that doesn't change the fact that any of us, when we're young, like <laughs> don't want the experience and don't yeah. want to have to do the whole put in your dues thing and all the rest. And like, there must be some way to accelerate this or shortcut this or the rest. But then when you get into it, it's like, no, no matter how you try to mentally psych yourself up, it's not the same as, what happens when you actually go through the experience and what you learn when you do. And I feel fortunate that fortune or good luck kind of Michael Kitts has crossed paths with me and really kind of presented an opportunity where I didn't have to get the full ice bucket, maybe just a cup of cold water on my head. And then I was kind of in the position where, you know, I would have aspired to be at the 10 year point basically first put down my plan. So what was the low point for you on this journey? So I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here because if I'm imagining a military person looking at this as a career, I think it's important to recognize just how vital a role a spouse plays in not only the military career, but something that is as daunting as leaving the relative financial stability of a military career and jumping out into an uncertain earnings environment. So I'll tell my story and then tell Tanya's story with the understanding that this is a question that she and I discussed uh, before this conversation. And so my story, I'll try and keep it short. It was during my department ed tour and we were on deployment and we had a normal deployment, but we had a pretty, I'll say, challenging commanding officer. And at one point, he he threatened to fire me over a misunderstanding during a poor visit. I had never been threatened to be fired, and, and I've never since had anyone threaten to fire me. But I thought, wow, this is the first time in my Navy career that anyone's really said something that that threatened, that challenged the assumptions around my livelihood. 
And I, and I knew in my heart of hearts, I didn't do anything wrong. It was just kind of the way he led virtually everyone on the ship. But from that, that time on, my relationship with him really, it became probably the most dysfunctional relationship I ever had with any person that I worked for in that if there were any reporting requirements that the Navy has that would have me give information to the commanding officer, you know, I, I didn't go around those requirements. I would simply document them in a series of memos. I would put them in his inbox. He dutifully never really read anything. So I still met all the reporting requirements, but we never spoke. And I continued to work for him for about a year until the next year he, we had a change of command and he left the ship. And um, it was a very <laughs> high stress time, but, but I learned two things. One, every challenging point, you know, in my life that I had encountered since then, I would look back on that experience and, and, and I've never had a point even when I was trying to build this practice, when Tanya and I were first starting out, I never had a point where it was as bad as then. And so that gave me a sense of perspective that if I got through that experience, I could make it through just about anything that I could really imagine. And then the, the second thing that I learned, Michael, was that we all have bosses. And even if you own your own practice, you have bosses in the form of clients. And it's important to recognize that in what I did recognize is that anything that I ever wanted to achieve in my series of tours or jobs afterward, I had to sit down and really think about what was, what my boss was struggling with or what, what the problems on my boss's plate were. Because if there's something in your responsibility that your boss is worried about, you can pretty much forget anything else you want to accomplish. And certainly that's true with clients. If, if a client comes to you with a spear in the back and you see the world's best tax planning opportunity, you're never going to have that conversation until you figure out what that client came in for. And now we just have 70 bosses and we have to really be specific to each of those people, what they value, what they don't value, and, and making sure that the message we want to create respects those. So with Tanya's story, it was the very next tour. And, and at this point, we were stationed in a Navy base in Sicily, in Italy. And I remember going to work one day. This was when my oldest son, Nicholas, was about three and my twins were not even a year old. And so I had already been, you know, kind of sent on various travel assignments for a variety of reasons. And I remember going to work thinking, this is a beautiful day in Sicily. And then I came home that day. I said, Tanya, I'm going to go to Africa for six months. And she was completely floored. Her first response was, how soon are you leaving? <laughs> and I said, well, I have about a month. I'm going to have to, you know, they gave me a list of things that, that I think I need to do, like, get malaria medication and shots updated, fine uniforms. But she was stuck in the, this position where short notice deployment and she was overseas. And so she didn't even have the opportunity to, a lot of folks might move back home with their parents so that they can help with 
with the kids and things of that nature. And being in Italy with less than a month's notice, she really didn't have that option. It was during that time that, you know, Tanya told me she really found the best of herself and just, you know, the limited resources that were at an overseas base, you know, not having the traditional friends and family support structure that she would have had if we were back in the States and raising three kids, all of whom were under the age of four. She made it through that deployment the way I made it through the coal deployment. And I look back on that experience with probably even more appreciation because I think having gone through that, she's the strongest person I've ever met. Both of those experiences really um, gave us perspective on bringing out the best of ourselves. I like that it's all about just her perspective, right? Just that whole dynamic. I like even how you framed it in in your segment as well. Like you know, we we go through these things in our lives, and like not to belittle any of the any of the challenges that that we face, but you know, it can pretty much always be worse. Often there's a time we can look back on our lives that's worse. If there's not, at least this will set the new low point. And when we get through this, everything else will be not as bad as this and can be the moment that you look back with perspective. But there's nothing like the just the accumulation of perspective that you get over time as you live through life's challenges and get some tools to deal with the next ones. Yeah. And I, although I think that those were the most challenging points, I, I, I do want to kind of say that for anyone leaving the military, you might have very similar kind of uh, points of reflection, but they're going to be quite different from that moment, you know, the, the month after you retire and it's the 15th of the month, then you realize that you're not getting a paycheck and that your paychecks from the government now come once a month. There's not quite anything that replaces that experience either. But to put it into perspective, if you've made it through challenging deployments and you've got a good plan, I believe, and and I think a mentor had told me at one point that success lies at the crossroads of preparation and opportunity. And certainly, you know, having faced that adversity during the course of your military career will help you find success along the way, even though the first year or three years might seem pretty challenging. So what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from three or four years ago as you were gearing up and getting ready for this launch? I've thought a little bit about that, and I'm not sure that I would change anything about the plan. I, I, I think that I had a pretty good plan and there's not really a whole lot I could have done to to make that happen. I probably would say just keep putting your feet forward and some opportunity will come by and be prepared to pivot. And be prepared to pivot. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast around success and, and one of the themes is always that that even just the word success means different things to different people. And so, you know, you've had your own journey, which is, as you've noted, had a, a pretty strong pivot to it to get to, you know, a great place that you're at right now as a, as a partner in a successful practice. But I'm wondering how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? 
So if you had asked me that at the beginning of my career, I, I probably would have just looked at the next pay grade above me and said, you know, I don't know what success looks like, but I know that once I get to that next pay grade, I'll be better off than I am now. And at some point, I think most people in the military get to the point where they recognize that there's, you know, kind of diminishing returns the further you go and, and that there are probably more and more cumulative sacrifices that, that are required as you go further. So I think that at least I reached the point where the next incremental pay grade was not going to be as close to the definition of success to me as, you know, something else that at the time I couldn't put my finger on. But I think being where I am now, we're fortunate that we have good clients, great clients. Uh, we have great staff. I have a great partner, both in life and in the business. And I have the flexibility of time so that if there's an opportunity to help in some way, then I'm able to kind of take some time and, and, and do that, whether it's in a mentorship capacity, whether it's just giving free advice to someone that I haven't talked to in, in a while, or just helping someone, you know, on a pro bono basis. And, and I kind of think of if you can live a life where you can't measure everything that matters, that you're able to take the time to actually in, enjoy some of those things that don't have a dollar value, then, then you're pretty close to success. At least that's the way I look at it. I like that. I like how, how you frame that, including if you can live a life where you can't measure everything that matters. I think it's really powerful. Well, thank you so much, Forrest, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.